Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Yelmer Voss about his book, Congo in the Age of Empire, 1860-1913, The Breakdown of a Moral Order, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2015. Dr. Voss is lecturer in global history at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Voss, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak on your podcast. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin uh, the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So I'm, uh, I was born in the Netherlands and raised in the Netherlands. Uh, I studied at the University of Amsterdam where I did my undergraduate uh, degree, and which was at the same time a master's degree at the time. Uh, actually, not in history, in political science, uh, where I got interested in uh, themes from historical sociology, like state formation and revolutions and political violence. Um, from there on, I went to the University of London, first to the London School of Economics, uh, where I started my PhD uh, under the supervision of John Kent. Uh, and during the PhD, I moved to uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, where I worked uh, under the supervision of uh, Professor William DeVries Clarence Smith. Uh, after the PhD, I did a postdoc uh, first at Emory, working on the uh, Slave Voyages uh, database, with which, with which I was involved already during my PhD. Did a postdoc at the University, uh, the Universidad de Nova de Lisboa. Uh, uh, before I, I mean, after that, I, I moved on to, I got my first academic job, so to say, at Old Dominion University in Virginia. And a few years ago, I moved uh, back to Europe and um, started my new job at the University of Glasgow. And that is me in a nutshell. <laughs> um, how do you came to be interested uh, in the Congo and or in the history of the Congo Kingdom? And how do you came to write this book? Yeah, so that's a, that's a sort of a, a long story, which I will try to sort of keep, keep short. I mean, it's, it's in a way by, by chance. Uh, happenstance. Um, I started my uh, doctoral research with a, with an interest in uh, political violence and anti-colonial resistance, and I wanted to do a sort of a comparative study of of, of major uh, anti-colonial movements in uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then my supervisor at the time, uh, Professor John Kent, he told me I, I was I was suggesting like. A, like to compare Algeria with Mozambique and Angola. And he said, pick one. And I started with Angola. I started reading into the history of Angola. And what I found is that uh, uh, sort of the early colonial history of Angola was, was very poorly studied. Um, there were studies, of course, by uh, people like Gilles Diaz, uh, Clarence Smith himself, my, my later supervisor, and, and uh, uh, Linda Haywood, for example. Uh, but overall, there was, was uh, sort of a little knowledge about the early colonial formations uh, in, in Angola. So you have that odd situation, actually, uh, like 
I don't know, a decade ago or so, uh, Richard Reed published this article in the Journal of African History lamenting the lack of uh, interest in pre-colonial African history. In the case of Angola, you almost have the, the opposite situation where there are certainly now more studies of, of pre-colonial uh, or proto-colonial history uh, in Angola, including an, an expanding field in, uh, uh, in Brazil. Then of, say, the post-slave trade and the, and the later colonial history of Angola, there are notable developments. So, for example, the, the studies by uh, Jeremy Ball and Todd Cleveland, and, and uh, very soon a very interesting book by Samuel Koche will come out on, on the medical history, uh, medical history in, in colonial Angola. Um, but that, that history was then when I started uh, and, and still is, uh, I think, uh, sort of understudied. So I decided, okay, I want to go back into that history. And I got fascinated by, by this event uh, that was there in the literature that was sort of mentioned and, and, and described, uh, which was the uh, Tulantabuta uprising in, in 1913 in northern Angola, in the Congo Kingdom. I mean, this, was, uh, this looked like a, a, an uprising uh, against labor exploitation. It spread very quickly over uh, a wide area in northern Angola, actually linked up with different sorts of separate revolts that were taking place. And it lasted for several years. So it was a, a sort of a major event in uh, early colonial, Portuguese colonial history. Uh, and there were apparent connections to the later anti-colonial uh, nationalist movement, which uh, turned out actually to be quite uh, spurious. And uh, that's also one of the sort of the points in my book, how I end my book and saying like this, uh, these connections are, are, are not really there. Um, so I set to work, uh, wrote my PhD, and, and that was later revised um, into the book. Um, uh, the, the difference sort of with, with sort of what, what I learned in the process is that that revolt, um, in trying to explain the revolt, or as, as, as it's called in Angola itself, it's more the, the, the war of Buddha. Um, it was necessary to place us in a longer history of, of Congo interaction uh, with different forces of empire. Uh, so starting around uh, 1860, as I explained in the book, when Angola was transitioning out of the export slave trade. So, so I became more interested sort of in the deeper historical background to these revolts and rather their place in, in the sort of the longer or the later uh, sort of memory of it and the connections that might or might not exist with the uh, sort of the anti-colonial uh, resistance movements of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so yeah, that's how I how I came to write this book. So, uh, so as a means of, of sort of diving into the book, can you give us um, or the readers a little bit of background of of that sort of like uh, preceding history, like that uh, that uh, how did the Portuguese uh, and, and this is something that I think a lot of, uh, uh, of listeners or people who sort of just casually read African history uh, don't quite understand. You know, they, they, we tend to think that uh, one day they declared themselves a colonial power and so it all started. But, but as, as, as you uh, detail in the book, 
uh, it, this is a process, you know, it doesn't happen uh, quickly. So how, how what is the sort of the process by which uh, we see the beginning of this early presence of, of Portugal uh, culminating in its becoming like a more official colonial power? Yes, so Portugal had a long presence on the coast of Angola um, uh, and, and, and it's in, in, in sort of Portuguese or Angolan, uh, the history of Angola and other parts of uh, sort of uh, Africa with, with, with Portuguese influence, this is always a bit problematic. Like how do, how do you call this sort of presence? Is it already sort of a colonial presence? How do you then distinguish it from sort of the later sort of the, sort of the 20th century cl- colonialism? So I think the, 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 the proper term to use would be sort of proto-colonialism. So you have a... a sort of a minimal Portuguese presence in on the coast mainly, but in Angola also uh, and the same thing was happening in, in Mozambique, uh, but also sort of with, with, with uh, fortified settlements in the interior. They were really sort of isolated spots, but had, of course, a tremendous influence on, on uh, social and political life in, uh, in Angola. So they exerted a lot of influence, uh, and therefore you, you can call it sort of proto-colonialism. But at the same time, these, these, this sort of presence was very sort of Africanized and very dependent on, on, on African alliances. Uh, so in, in, in a sense, it was a, it was a feeble presence, but also a, uh, uh, a very influential presence. Now, from that base, uh, particularly then uh, around 1860, or, uh, when, the, when the slave trade was coming to an end, uh, you see Portugal trying to expand its, its, its sphere of influence in in uh, parts of Angola. Uh, they do that partly in response because of uh, the presence of, of other international powers um, uh, on the coast of Angola, notably uh, in northern Angola. It, it, it's, it's the British who are there. And then later uh, you get the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Congo Association of, uh, of King Leopold of Belgium that become really sort of threats to Angola's presence in in uh, in northern Angola, so they try to get their foot in uh, because they 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 have this history of sort of claiming uh, particular rights over over uh, over over certain areas, and uh, earlier on they have tried to sort of establish a presence in in Cabinda, um, but this is. It, it really expands uh, after, or sort of in the middle of the 19th century. Um, and the Kingdom of Congo was a, a central element in their strategies to, to gain influence. So they had an old, uh, they had contacts with, with the king. I mean, these, these go back uh, a, a long time. Um, and they tried to sort of use their their uh, their connection with the kingdom of congo to uh, to show to other international powers like look this is actually uh, where, where we are uh, and they also try to use the king to uh, uh, to start claiming uh, particular domains uh, for the well in the, in the portuguese view of course for their own political purposes, for 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 the king, uh, it was an opportunity to 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 extend his own influence in particular areas, in which he was uh, often very uh, unsuccessful. 
So, but that started in the in the mid nineteenth century, or right eighteen sixty in particular, when uh, when 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 the Portuguese intervened in a, a succession struggle in in the Congo Kingdom, um, and from there on, you see a gradual extension of Portuguese influence. And then, when the Berlin Conference uh, happens in uh, 1884, 1885, actually Portugal gains sort of international. Uh, rights over over this area, and then you st- sort of see the more familiar uh, process of, of colonial domination really picking up. So, in in at this juncture, when um, uh, when the Portuguese uh, decide to intervene in, in this um, uh, succession struggle. Can you tell us about, uh, uh, you know, going into like the initial chapter of your book, uh, tell us about, uh, you know, what, what was happening at the Congo Kingdom? You know, what, uh, uh, how did it function? How, what was its place in, in uh, its place in this particular region? Uh, and how is it that this, this particular uh, power struggle that we see uh, the Portuguese sort of like weighing in, uh, what what changes it this is signaling in, in in terms of the history of the kingdom itself? Yes, uh, thanks. That, that is that is a very good question. Um, well, as I describe in that first chapter of the book, uh, what I tr- first of all try to, to 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 do in that chapter is 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 explain uh, how we should look, how we should understand uh, this this African kingdom. Um, the Portuguese have particular views. They talk about kings as if they are sort of powerful rulers uh, that, that, that rule over a, a, a certain territory. Uh, that was not the case with, with this kingdom. So uh, it's alternatively called a title association or an alliance of clans uh, or, or a trade corporation. Um, as, a, as, a, as a kingdom or as a chiefdom, it, it was a very small place. It, it was... Uh, San Salvador, yeah, the capital of the kingdom, uh, Mbanza Congo, as it is called in, in the Cong- Congolese terms, which was a, a spiritual center which united uh, powerful elites in uh, the Congo area uh, from, where they, from where power emanated. So they got their, 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 their chiefly titles uh, from uh, San Salvador, uh, uh, the symbols of power, came from San Salvador. Um, and this, this was all organized through a, a Christian cult. So they had adopted Christianity and made Christianity a real sort of the core of the kingdom. So uh, elite families married uh, Christian way. Uh, burials were, uh, were Christian. Uh, the cross was the main symbol of power. Um, so Christianity played an important role in sort of uh, uh, keeping that kingdom together. Uh, as a uh, as Wyatt McGaffey, the anthropologist, has called it, as sort of a trade corporation to keep control over the lines of the long distance trade. Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's it's a way to manage power, and that is still how the kingdom functioned uh, around 1860. So 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 on the eve of say this colonial expansion of Portugal. Um, and what changes then, well, because this kingdom is, is sort of Christian, it has had these long relationships with Europe, uh, 
you see that they are sort of very open to, uh, to, to reach out to foreign powers. I mean, first of all, they get their uh, sort of religious symbols from, 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 from a European religious tradition. Uh, but they've also always had these alliances to uh, import guns and uh, material culture and uh, people get educated uh, in, in uh, Portuguese schools. They travel to Europe. Um, so you could say, for example, that, that this, this, this kingdom had this sort of a long history of, of what uh, Jean-Francois Bayard, the French political scientist, called extraversion. So it's always sort of looking out. And uh, when uh, the king, uh, Henrique II, died in, in 1857, uh, there was a, a, a struggle to succeed him. And uh, one party uh, seemed to be reaching out to uh, French traders that were established in the Congo River, and another party of uh, the late who, of, of the later king uh, who, who titled himself Pedro V uh, reached out to Portugal, and that is where sort of Portugal uh, intervenes in that struggle and makes sure that their ally. Uh, uh, Pedro uh, becomes becomes the new uh, king of Congo. Another way to look at this is that because Pedro only comes onto onto the throne uh, with the help with the military support of Portugal, he becomes their dependent. And what you see then at this very moment is uh, what what Colin Newbery has called sort of a reversal of of Pedro patron-client relationships. So he explains that in previous periods, Europeans were often dependent on uh, their African allies for protection, uh, for trade. Uh, uh, sort of the negotiation that was taking place between Europeans and Africans was for a long time done sort of on equal terms or often on the coast, Africans were sort of the dominant party. What you see here is a reversal. So the King of Congo comes to power, claims the throne, and becomes very dependent on uh, his Portuguese backers. Um, and they gradually sort of gain influence, more and more influence uh, on, on, this, uh, on this kingdom. Um, I forgot a little bit where you were with your question. No, 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 that's okay. I, I just was trying to sort of like set that, you know, set, set a little bit of the scene, you know, and like, like exactly how the Portuguese, why and, and, and by which means they, they, uh, they choose to intervene in, 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 uh, in this struggle. And like you said, it's, it's in a way it has to do with them themselves trying to um, sort of increase, uh, expand their, their influence here. And on the other hand, uh, uh, Pedro, like you said, uh, uh, finding a way of, of succeeding or being successful in, in this in this struggle. Uh, so we, we can see the, the motivations on both sides of why they, they this entanglement sort of gets started. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess we can sort of also see uh, in chapter two, when you start telling us a little bit, what was the uh, sort of the, the more uh, socioeconomic setting that uh, that encouraged both of these parties to enter into this, um, into this um, um, sort of like relationship? How is this? Uh, it's very interesting in a way to see, for instance, in chapter two, how you start to explain 
the context of the post-slave um, trade uh, economy, you know, how this starts to change, and in some ways, how is it that these two parties try to benefit uh, from this uh, changing economic setting? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, what is what is happening economically that enables um, this new relationship to to evolve? Yeah. So, so the the that that sort of economic history is, is sort of a. a, a a sort of a second storyline uh, in the book. So the first is one is the sort of the, the renovation of of, of uh, a Christian kingdom. Yeah, so this uh, this older Christian kingdom uh, under in this early colonial period sort of uh, uh, sort of rebuilds itself, um, and that's that's we can talk about uh, uh, that uh, a bit later. That comes particularly up in in in, in chapter three, but it runs also throughout the book basically. Um, the important important changes in in uh, in northern Angola um, uh, have to do indeed with sort of the 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 emergence of, of new forms of trade. So this is an area that was was long involved in uh, in the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, that that in this corner of Africa uh, really only came to an end in uh, in uh, eighteen sixty seven. Uh, with uh, the last uh, ships that left the Congo River for uh, for Cuba, um, and until that point, there is there is really not much going on in terms of export economy. Now, I also make uh, the point in the book, like export trade is one way to look at Congo society, but of course, export trade uh, only affects that society to, to a certain extent. Uh, so, this is largely still sort of an agricultural society. Uh, in which, uh, which, which is, uh, uh, I mean, it, the whole area is sort of affected by the by the by the impact of the of the export slave trade. But there are, of course, many people who who don't participate in that at all. Um, so the sort of trades that come up after the eighteen uh, sixties are uh, are first the ivory trade, well, which is a which is a trade that has been going on for a bit longer, but really picks up. Uh, in the 1860s uh, and 70s. Um, and then in the 1870s, what you also see coming up is the, is the export trade in rubber. And uh, for a while, Angola uh, becomes the, sort of the, the, the major rubber supplier uh, uh, in Africa to European traders. Uh, and Congo played its, its, its part in that. Um, so the rubber was was incredibly important, and 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 the, the the point that I try to make in the book is sort of how this then affected sort of the, sort of the working lives of of um, uh, well, particularly uh, African men in this domain. Uh, so this rubber had to be carried uh, uh, on head, uh, or well practically more shoulders. Uh, so they have these shoulder baskets, which, uh, by, which, which caravans of men carry to the coast. Uh, and that really, on a yearly basis, sort of uh, involved the labor of, of thousands of men uh, who walk uh, sort of for months from uh, interior places of trade where, where, where rubber is collected and then traded uh, and, and brought uh, down to the coast. Um, so that is a fundamental history because it 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 uh, for many Congolese men this was sort of the the sort of their 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 main 
exposure to sort of dealing with Europeans. Um, and particularly also when uh, sort of a lot of the, the what, what were called trade factories, which are really tr sort of trade houses, uh, stores on the coast, uh, began to move inland. Uh, and again, just like the Portuguese are looking uh, to San Salvador and Banza Congo as a site to sort of expand their political power, uh, the first trade houses that move in from, uh, from the Congo River uh, to the north move in uh, into the interior. They also open up stores in San Salvador. And then what you see is also a shift, say, from independent caravan trade to Africans starting to carry for uh, European uh, trade houses. Um, they did that often uh, sort of also on a free basis. So they negotiated often then through their, 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 their elders uh, contracts with, uh, uh, with um, European traders. Uh, this was relatively well-paid labor. Uh, this was also sort of honorable labor. Um, this was not, say, slave labor. But what you do see over time, uh, and that's sort of a conflict that comes out uh, in the book, is that when, when more and more European trade houses move inland and they move deeper inland, uh, there was sort of a conflict between sort of African control over labor and Africans trying to set, sort of organize their own uh, or who were used to organizing their own independent rubber caravans. And these European traders who, who need more and more of African labor. And that happens precisely at a time when also uh, the Portuguese colonial state is expanding its influence inland. Um, so that goes sort of in tandem and starts intervening in the recruitment uh, process. Uh, and when that happens, uh, it, the, the process becomes partly violent. Uh, so on paper, the contracts uh, sometimes are still uh, fairly lucrative. Uh, the payment was, was, was fairly good. Uh, but at the same time, you see that a lot of men are being recruited uh, by force. Um, the fundamental point that I sort of, or the fundamental contrast that I try to bring out in the book is that African men associated sort of labor in the colonial economy very much with, with portraits, portraits, sorry. So with transporting. Uh, and you see that, for example, also in the way that during the, the uprising or in the aftermath of the uprising, uh, when uh, there is this big discussion between uh, uh, the, the sort of what in colonial language are called sort of the rebel chiefs um, and the missionaries and the, and the authorities in that discussion, uh, the main rebel leader, uh, Tulante Buta, would always talk about workers as carriers. Uh, that was the term for, for workers, whereas the, the work that was at stake, like the, the problem then, was no longer carriage, it, it was about plantation labor. But a worker who would go out to a plantation was called a carrier. So there is this, this, uh, this major experience, um, often sort of... Uh, beneficial for, for African men to work in the caravan trade. And that experience came to an end when the rubber trade imploded uh, after 1910. Uh, a couple of factories also leave uh, San Salvador. Uh, employment in the caravan trade uh, is no longer 
uh, that much available. And that's exactly the point when uh, Portugal tries to recruit uh, men for plantation labor in the uh, Cabinda enclave uh, north of the Congo River, and then subsequently also on a massive scale, uh, an unprecedented scale, uh, the islands of Santo Tome Principe. Uh, and that in a place uh, where um, Congo was never involved, say, in these forced labor schemes for Santo Tome Principe, which, which, which came up in the late 1870s, uh, uh, which really sort of a continuation of the slave trade, uh, which recruited heavily in central Angola. Uh, so Angola was his main supplier of forced labor to Santo Tome Principe for, for decades, but this labor never came from, uh, from northern Angola, or hardly uh, ever from northern Angola. Uh, it drew on, on central Angola, and what you then see uh, after 1910 is that uh, uh, suddenly, because they have this connection with the King of Congo, they try to recruit labor in the kingdom, and that is... Uh, basically a no-go for the African chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and a third uh, uh, sort of leg of your story, as, 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 as you previously said, has to do with um, uh, Christianity and, and the way it also sees, um, you know, it, it, there's, like you said, is there's a lot of continuity in, in the way in which uh, Christianity is going to, play a role in this story, but there are also a few changes that uh, take place uh, uh, around 1860. Um, uh, can, can you tell us about this? Uh, it's kind of like the story that you try to detail in, in chapter three uh, with the arrival of these uh, mission, new missionary churches, but like you said, that also um, sort of draw or, or uh, feed off like the existing uh, relationship that, that this region has had with Christianity. Yes, so um, so the, the Congo Kingdom, because of its peculiar political history, uh, was was always very interested in receiving Christian missionaries, um, and uh, for a long time, uh, Congo was without a, a permanent presence of, of European priests. They kept the Christian tradition alive by themselves. Uh, that was not a problem. Uh, the problem was that they needed priests for particular rituals. Uh, particularly installing chiefs and burials. Uh, so particular important pl- rituals for political power were dependent on the presence of, 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 of priests. Um, for half a century or so, there hadn't been any. And then suddenly in uh, sort of the, 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 the rush uh, or part sort of, of the prelude to the to, to the partitioning of Africa uh, and uh, the, the rush sort of the Christianize Africa, you see Christian missions becoming very interested in, uh, well, of course, different areas of, of Africa, uh, but they're also looking at Congo. Um, and the first mission that, that uh, sort, sort of really moves inland is the, is the Baptist Missionary Society from England, uh, they see San Salvador basically as a as a stage in a in a sort of a longer expansion, uh, a deeper expansion inland along the Congo River. Uh, they didn't have plans really to settle for long in San Salvador, but they ended up uh, actually staying. 
while also building, of course, a long line of mission stations uh, deep into the Central African interior along, along the River Congo. Um, but San Salvador was their first uh, station, and for a long time, so they're their main station. Uh, but they were Protestants, and uh, what I try to explain also a bit in that in that chapter is that 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 caused some confusion between uh, sort of the, the Congolese elites, including the king, uh, and and the uh, the Protestant mission, because Protestants don't do the same sort of rituals as, as Catholics do. Uh, so the King of Congo was very happy when uh, a couple of years later, the Portuguese decided to send a Catholic mission. They were very suspicious of uh, what the Protestants were doing uh, in that area. Uh, so they sent a very influential missionary, uh, Barroso, to, uh, to San Salvador, but with a very clear political mission as well. So for, for, the, for the Portuguese, uh, religion was... Uh, also political, but in, in a very different way, uh, in a sense. Um, so suddenly you have these two missions uh, back in San Salvador, uh, which made the king very happy uh, and uh, his people as well. But what you do see is that, so there are, there are certain sort of uh, uh, things that happen in, in almost the same way as in previous centuries. Uh, so, for example, there's a suspicion towards sort of the, the white missionaries. These missions only become really successful when they manage to train their own uh, evangelists and their own catechists, uh, who then start spreading uh, the Christian teaching uh, out from uh, from San Salvador. Um, but as they do so, uh, you see also sort of Christianity becoming part of, of social and political identities. Uh, uh, and you see that on a sort of a personal level. So, uh, so you have young men uh, and women who, uh, who see the mission sort of as part of their sort of may, maybe part of sort of personal strategies uh, for young men, particularly uh, it gains status and they, they, they see these missions as a way of, of upward mobility. So to get educated, to learn skills. Um, and you see a lot of these young missionary men indeed later uh, ending up in uh, particular professions and in, poli in political positions uh, 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 and roles in the government, or what you might say the government, but for example, becoming policemen. Uh, but also uh, political identities uh, collectively. So you see uh, particular villages becoming either Catholic or Protestant. Uh, and that in itself is not maybe such a problem, but it, it translates itself also in sort of political rivalry. So, so particular factions within the kingdom uh, that then start vying for power when there is a succession struggle, for example. Uh, some of these factions are Catholic, other factions are Protestant. Uh, so religion becomes very much a politicized. Uh, and that's, that's sort of a... a, 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 a a theme that comes back uh, sort of in, in different parts of the book, but it plays a very important uh, role in the, uh, the conflict of uh, 1913. Uh, maybe this is a, a good time. Uh, there was something about uh, this sort of mingling of uh, sort of religion and politics that I, that I, uh, that I think sort of affected or influenced your, your choice of, 
this, this concept of uh, the moral community uh, as opposed to just the moral economy. And, and, and you can elaborate on, on that, why you decided to make that distinction, which I particularly found very um, uh, uh, very illuminating. I mean, I, I, when, I, when I teach students, um, uh, when I have them read Lonsdale and, and the notion of the moral economy, uh, I, I think they they found it they find it sometimes difficult to 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 capture. Uh, but your explanation of uh, why the notion of a moral community might be uh, uh, more easier to or easier to to sort of apprehend, I, I, I did I did find that that was the case. Uh, but I, I think at the, at this juncture in, in chapter three, when when you start talking about Sort of discontinuities and and uh, like the changes and 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 the motivations of people uh, to to join. It seemed to me that uh, it is precisely that you're, you're uh, sort of giving us a little story of how this um, sort of moral community starts to redefine itself, like the the relationship not just of uh, uh, sort of the elites to the Portuguese, but then also the, the, the role that Christianity starts to play uh, in the relationship between the elites and the peoples or, or like the chiefs and the peoples who follow these chiefs. Um, so c- can you explain to us a little bit more how you see this, this moral, this new moral community sort of taking shape uh, by kind of like bringing in this, this old uh, 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 Christian um, cult, but at the same time, sort of renewing it and 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 redefining it, even with the arrival of this this uh, Protestants and, and 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 new practitioners of Christianity. Yes. Um, uh, well, first of all, I have to say that moral community that that's a concept uh, sort of uh, borrowed from uh, Jonathan Glassman's uh, uh, first book. Um, and I thought that what that was actually a very appropriate concept for to describe sort of the the, the community that's that's in the kingdom. Uh, so you have this sort of older interpretation of the kingdom as a as a uh, as a title association or a, um, um, a trade corporation that uh, for a very long time it functioned like that. Then during the period of colonial rule, uh, as, I, as I explained in the book, it becomes sort of a vehicle for colonial expansion. But to understand sort of the relationships within the kingdom, between the people in the kingdom, I thought, yeah, this is sort of more, this is a moral community um, in the sense that it, it was a very sort of tightly knit community. Uh, basically, everybody in the kingdom knew each other. Uh, so this was no longer sort of a kingdom that was sort of extended over, over very large areas um, where, uh, where you deal with people that, that you basically never meet uh, uh, through long distance trade. In, instead, you have this community of people that uh, often grew up together uh, in, in mission schools uh, that knew each other from uh, involvement in trade. Um, so it's it's heavily sort of sort of personalized. These these relationships were heavily personalized, uh, and of course governed by well, first of all, sort of moral codes that that exist within a community, but also sort of political codes of conduct uh, and understandings of, of sort of what is proper 
uh, political rule. Uh, these codes are often defined sort of also or, or, or cast in sort of Christian language. And, and this is where the, the, the missionaries again start playing uh, sort of an important role as, as, as uh, sort of the missionary teaching becomes a standard um, uh, sort of to describe uh, proper moral behavior. Um, and that, is, so that community, I think it's important to understand that this is very much sort of an, an, an African community and that the Europeans who arrive uh, in the kingdom um, from uh, the 1870s onwards and sort of settle in San Salvador, they're very few in number. And they become all sort of sort of domesticated. They become all part of that of that of that community. Um, so that's a, a couple of missionaries, a couple of traders, and a couple of people who represent sort of Portuguese rule. Uh, but they become part of the kingdom. Uh, so the moral community was uh, uh, involved Africans and Europeans. Um, uh, but it was very much a so sort of a, so an African community. The codes that I sort of the changes that you that you asked about sort of what 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 is happening is that um, sort of a, for a lot of people the the changes that come with with with, with colonial rule mean that some some of the older uh, ways of of earning uh, status or respect. Uh, uh, are, are no longer really valid. They stop sort of uh, have a lot of relevance. So, so previously, uh, chiefs would, or, but it continued into the early 20th century. Where chiefs would be invested, for example, in the in the Order of Christ, um, and sort of the old Christian symbols were ways to to demonstrate uh, status and power. Uh, what you see happening uh, under colonial, under early colonial rule is that particularly young men uh, turn to uh, sort of sort of more modern European forms of dress, uh, uh, people who are uh, involved in government uh, uh, like to uh, get their hands on, on, on military titles um, uh, and, uh, and, and of course police uniforms, that sort of thing. And so, so, so there's also a sort of a cultural change taking place uh, with, within the kingdom. Uh, well, there's actually a, um, sort of a, a third way, and it's something that we haven't, haven't uh, discussed yet, uh, but to sort of look at this kingdom as, as a vehicle of, 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 of colonial expansion. Um, but but I'll, I'll, I'll pass it on for you to ask, maybe ask a question about, but that is sort of the, the, the role of, of African intermediaries in, in the colonial system. Uh, so this kingdom becomes sort of uh, this, this sort of a, a way for for uh, people to place to get positions in this in this expanding colonial world, um, and that is ultimately uh, sort of the way these people behave is what ultimately sort of undermines the moral community. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, and 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 I think you're you're uh, right in in reminding me about the the this notion of intermediaries because I think one of the interesting parts about um, sort of like 
when one point that you make at one point in the book is when you talk about in a way what missionaries were allowing uh, some of the uh, uh, you know inhabitants of the Congo is to uh, they themselves learned uh, sort of the language of Europeans uh, while so much of that relationship had been mediated uh, through the king it had been sort of the king and and the elites that had sort of established this relationship uh, uh, with uh, uh, with Portuguese the Portuguese and and, and, and Europeans uh, as more people uh, start to attend these missions and join these missions and convert, maybe uh, they themselves saw this as a way of, like like you said, learning skills, but also learning how to negotiate mm-hmm. uh, their entry I- into this new colonial order. And, and, and like you will say later, and in, 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 in when we talk about the actual uh, rebellion, uh, this Brought problems, you know. This, this, uh, you know, who had the, the power to negotiate and what kind of negotiations were, were taking place uh, was one of the contentious issues. Um, so, but before we get to that, though, I, I wonder if if you can tell us a little bit about now the very specific situation that takes place uh, by the installation of of of, of Pedro. Uh, in, in chapter four, you you give us a more detailed. Uh, explanation of this, uh, the, 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 the Portuguese intervention in this secession struggle and how that, uh, again, sets up the, the, the place of, of, of how uh, this relationship, uh, like what you mentioned earlier, like this more, maybe more dependent relationship of, of, of uh, the, the Congolese elites uh, to the Portuguese uh, and, and the more formal start of the colonial period uh, in this area. Yes, so that is that is that relates to the, the sort of the, the question really of sort of what colonial rule meant in 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 Congo, um, and sort of of these three elements of of empire or of colonialism, sort of trade, religion, and politics. I mean, the colonial state was was uh, by far the most problematic. Um, so uh, the Congolese welcomed these missionaries. Um, uh, they welcomed traders, uh, and they could deal with that. Uh, but ultimately, what they couldn't deal with was the sort of the, the growing intervention of, of of Portuguese colonialism in their domain. Although they had welcomed the Portuguese as well, uh, so the King Pedro V was very happy with the military support he received from from the Portuguese. But the Portuguese more and more intervened in their succession struggles. At one point, they also uh, say. Actually, hey, we don't want that uh, title of king anymore. Uh, that is way too powerful a title for somebody who has sort of a function in the colonial system. So, so officially they demote the king to, to being a, a, a what they call a native judge. Um, except in reality, that's not happening because uh, the Congolese themselves look upon this, this person as, as their king. Uh, so despite the loss of the title of the king, the, 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 he's, he would still receive also from Portugal uh, the, uh, the the symbols of, of royal power, uh, so the robes and the staff and uh, all that. Um, but Portugal starts interve- intervening. They start building their their, their power from uh, uh, particularly after after the Berlin Conference. Uh, so they 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 finally sent out uh, uh, a military. Uh, 
a military presence or an, an administrator also to, to, to San Salvador. Uh, and every time now that there is a succession struggle, the Portuguese uh, really uh, sort of influence the outcome of that. Uh, so there's a negotiation between part parties, uh, there are different contenders, uh, but Portugal clearly has uh, a, a particular favorite. And that favorite is since basically Pedro V came to power in uh, 1860, uh, somebody of the Aguarosada family. Uh, and the Aguarosadas are everywhere. Uh, so they also take up the positions in, uh, well, in trade. Uh, they, they, they get trained both in the Protestant and in the Catholic mission uh, schools. Uh, they take up uh, their roles as uh, sort of as policemen in San Salvador. Uh, they become brokers for, uh, for the Portuguese state in northern Angola. So when, uh, for example, a new place needs to be opened up for trade, they send out a particular member of the Aguarosada family to negotiate that with chiefs. Uh, they become involved in labor recruitment. So the Aguasadas are are there. Uh, so they really see this. I mean, for them it worked, right? I mean, they 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 uh, they effectively make the Congo Kingdom a vehicle for colonial expansion. Um, and it is they who serve uh, often then as 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 uh, African intermediaries. Now, so in chapter four. Uh, they sort of sort of drives at the election of um, uh, um, the, the the sort of the sort of the final or the king who uh, who has his downfall. So Manuel Martins Kiditu, uh, who is who gets elected in 1911 again after long negotiations between different factions and the Portuguese trying to influence the outcome. Uh, the Protestants saying, no, we want this one. The Catholics saying, no, we want that one. Um, ultimately, Kidito is installed. So Kidito himself is uh, trained in the, uh, in the Catholic mission. Uh, he has been a trader. Uh, he, has been, uh, he has been to Luanda. Uh, um, he's sort of this, this uh, embodiment of, of all these uh, sort of new colonial uh, uh, development. Um, he gets installed at a moment when uh, sort of the, the kingdom is under stress. I mean, the, there is a uh, the hot tax has been introduced uh, several years earlier. Um, so the caravan trade is slowing down, and the Portuguese are starting to recruit uh, labor for uh, for the Cabinda plantations, and then uh, one or two years later. Uh, uh, they try to recruit labor for uh, Santo Mei Principe. Uh, the kingdom is under stress. Uh, the previous kings, uh, the Congolese people, were not uh, always happy with. Um, so when Kidito gets installed, they do that on very specific conditions um, that really sort of circumscribe um, his powers. Uh, and also tell him how he should behave and the way they tell that sort of the, 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 the language in which that is written. So that was a short sort of written statement, a very simple language, but um, which referred back to all the traditions of, of political power. So it was really rooted in sort of this, sort of this older uh, uh, moral economy, you might say. Um, 
a list of conditions. And the final condition was if you don't uh, follow these rules, uh, uh, you will be deposed. Okay, it's as simple as that. Um, and if I could rewrite the book, I would really sort of sort of sort of organize the the, the, the narrative around uh, this this character Kiditu. Uh, although we don't know that much about him, um, I mean he 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 sort of the. I mean, he symbolizes all all these developments that take place in in the Congo, and he sits really at these uh, sort of this 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 clash between sort of old traditions and new traditions, um, and and it's there. For example, there are pictures of him, uh, also of his installation. So this is a man who who, who wears uh, or seems to be most comfortable wearing uh, a European suit, and has these leather leather shoes, uh, but then he gets also. Uh, uh, he becomes king, so he he puts uh, the royal robe on top of his suit, uh, has a staff in his hand, puts on a, 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 the, the traditional uh, hat uh, for kings. Uh, so he sits at this juncture of of two uh, two traditions, and he struggles with it, um, uh, and that becomes clear. So there's also an interview uh, with him sort of in the inquest of what went wrong uh, in 1913. He's interviewed in 1914 and uh, along with several other witnesses, but he was, of course, the key witness. And in that interview, I mean, it's written down in, in this, sort of this, this document, like, I mean, he has a nervous breakdown. I mean, he, he, he really struggled with, with, uh, with what had happened uh, uh, later on. I mean, for two years, uh, he is a very conflicted ruler. I mean, he, he represents on the one hand, or he has to represent his people. But at the same time, uh, he, he has to work for the Portuguese. I mean, they installed him also to be a negotiator on behalf of the people with the Portuguese overlord. And he, he, he couldn't manage. And, and perhaps you could say that was always an impossible role because that, that the Portuguese would, would start demanding more and more uh, uh, of him. Uh, and uh, Portuguese interests uh, conflicted with the interests, particularly, say, of the, uh, the traditional African chiefs. Well, that got us on a, on a different track, I think. But <laughs> I don't know, but, but, but in a way, I mean, it's like as, as we're uh, coming to, to basically the, 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 you know, the, the, the rebellion and the moment in which this takes place, uh, you have told us a little bit about, uh, you know, the... Uh, one of the reasons why this conflict started to sort of build up had to do with sort of like the labor requirements, the changing labor requirements. Uh, the uh, one point, point that uh, you also make is uh, how one of the reasons why these new labor requirements became so oppressive had to do also with uh, the imposition of new taxes, uh, which hadn't been um so there's this, this there's this building up of demands uh, on the part of uh, as part of the expansion of Portuguese uh, colonial rule, uh, which do become um, uh, very untenable uh, for those uh, uh, in, in charge of trying to negotiate them. Uh, and I, I guess from from that notion of the negotiation, uh, the, the the requirement that the king negotiate, uh, it, it's interesting because, like you said, it, it was. He had to negotiate with uh, new demands, but 
this notion of having to be in charge of negotiating with Europeans was not, that was part of his job as like the old king. Um, So uh, as as in the context of the rebellion, which is what what you sort of detail in chapter six, um, can you tell us a bit how how all these like tensions between the old and the new and and the the attempt to sort of uh, rebuild the, what had been broken. And in other words, uh, we see in that, like in that inquest, uh, like you said, and in that speech, you, you talk a lot about the speech that Buta gives here. Uh, how, how do we see this sense of what, what is broken, what needs to be rebuilt, uh, where did uh, the king failed, and, and what was it? What, what, what was it that we were trying to achieve in this rebellion? Yeah, so so as, as you mentioned, there is this uh, uh, well, there's this is transcript of the of the of the what was called the war palaver. Uh, so in in December nineteen thirteen, uh, uh, over a thousand uh, troops, African troops, uh, organized by by uh, Tulante Buta and others, they they descend on on San Salvador. Uh, they burn the town down, etc. So they, they, they scare uh, 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 the, the, well, the Portuguese administration. It was just sort of one or two guys there. Um, so, so they, 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 um, uh, they lay siege basically on the on the Congo capital, and then uh, in the days after, there, there's a negotiation taking place with the king in hiding. Uh, so, the, so on behalf of the king, you have the Portuguese administrator who who sits there basically as a defendant, um, uh, and this it is a palaver that that takes place over two days, and that palaver is really sort of what what uh, sh- how that shows how much the Congolese saw everything that was sort of happening in terms of colonial expansion uh, as an expansion of the of the kingdom. Uh, so they don't uh, blame the Portuguese administrator so much. They, they put the blame squarely on the king. And that was sort of an important way for me to see sort of, okay, so how is this then, how is this whole process of colonial expansion actually happening and, and being perceived uh, in the Congo kingdom? Now, some of the, uh, the complaints that are expressed, the grievances that are expressed uh, during during that palaver have, have to do clearly uh, with labor. So some of the things come out very clearly. And I can already say sort of some of the things, you also know that things that are happening, but that, that the, sort of the archival documentation uh, hasn't sort of allowed me to sort of really uh, figure out in, in depth. I mean, there's a dimension here that, that, for example, doesn't, this had a lot to do also with, diminishing power of African chiefs uh, vis-a-vis uh, their male subjects, but also vis-a-vis their female subjects. Um, and uh, so part of this has to do sort of with, with, with labor relations. Uh, how is labor organized? Uh, how much control do the chiefs still have over labor? Uh, and some of it is then also has to do with social relationships and um, uh, how these were changing in these early decades of colonial rule. Um, that is going on, um, but that is something that, unfortunately, I haven't been able to, to fully document. 
Uh, but Dascom Auto uh, in the rebellion and in the transcripts that exist of it uh, is this idea of moral breakdown. And that, that happens at three levels. Uh, so, so one level is a breakdown in the, in the relationship between Portugal and Congo. The understanding that they had about uh, sort of the colonial ar arrangement that they had with each other. And that changed, these terms changed when Portugal introduced the hot tax and then uh, imposed labor demands. Uh, and that's where sort of the, the uh, an existing moral economy changes to, to talk in uh, uh, sort of John Lonsdale's terms, as, as, as you said. Um, a second way, and, and I mean, let me make clear, I mean, the, 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 the hot tax, well, the hot tax was negotiable also, except that the, the, the tax rates constantly went up, but when it was collection time, uh, uh, I mean, some people couldn't pay, and, and, and colonial administrators on the ground knew that, and they tried to often tell the superiors, like, we have to, we have to demand less. At the same time, tax was, of course, a way to push people into labor uh, contracts. Uh, so, so it, it, it works in that way. Uh, uh, it works in two ways. Um, but the real problem is, is when tax really gets connected to the recruitment of plantation labor. And the whole process becomes incredibly violent. Uh, so I described that uh, sort of in well in brief detail in, in, in the book. Um, but because it is so much the sort of the, um, uh, the, the African intermediaries who uh, are responsible for, for a lot of the violence that takes place, um, uh, it is again the, the chiefs who, who look particularly at the King of Congo, like, uh, how can you let this happen? Uh, and 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 I mean, sort of even a, I mean he was in charge in a way of of this process. That's how they see it. Anyway, so that's that's sort of the breakdown of of the colonial relationship. Uh, uh, then you have the breakdown of the relationship between sort of the kingdom and his people. So they see sort of the subjects of of, of the kingdom, or and that's the first sort of the first layer are the uh, the, the the traditional chiefs. Um, uh, they see the king as, as failing in his duty to protect, uh, to protect the people and failing in his role as guarantor of peace and prosperity. So this was what he was installed uh, for, uh, to sort of bring prosperity back to Congo. And instead, they say, like, instead of uh, sort of improving our economic situation, you go to Cabinda and negotiate with the Portuguese governor uh, and uh, 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 these these abysmal labor contracts for Cabinda, and then later you invite them to uh, to ask for fifteen hundred workers for for Santo May. Um, they also blame the king for uh, authorizing violence in the in the collection of hot tax in the, and in the collection of in the recruitment of of, of labor. Um, and there's a whole, sort of a whole range of, of activities, sort of government activities, that they uh, uh, where they see that 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 political office has been 
corrupted. Yeah, so from the king downwards. Um, so that's sort of a second level of moral breakdown. And then there's also a third one, which is very personal. And that's the relationship between the king, Manuel Kiditu, and Tulante Buta, the, the main, the, 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 the sort of the leading chief. Um, they know each other. They might have been related uh, uh, by family. I mean, they would certainly have claimed sort of a, 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 a relationship of, of, of clanship. Um, Buta has previously worked with Kiditu. He has paid taxes. He has provided labor. Uh, but certain things go wrong. Uh, one of Buta's men gets killed. Uh, some of the, the, the workers that are sent to Kabinda are, are, are not coming back in time. Um, so they, they, they start having misgivings about what, what is happening in that, in that sort of that, 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 that colonial arrangement. But then on a personal level, it, it, there's, there's a breaking of trust. Um, and they, they, Buta sees, uh, well, not only Buta, but Buta personally uh, uh, very strongly sees Kidito as, as, as a traitor. Uh, because... Uh, Kidito had ordered at one point, at least that's how, how they see it, had ordered his arrest. Uh, and so they become clear enemies. And that is, uh, that, that's an important sort of third dimension um, that, uh, that comes out in this, in this, in this revolt. Um, almost to the extent that, that you think that if they had managed to resolve their sort of their personal conflict, um, this whole event would not have happened. Um, so it's so so that sort of that personal sort of or that I mean you might almost call it sort of a sort of emotional history yeah, or a history of emotions, um, uh, which, which actually was coming up as a as a sort of a field uh, at the time that I that I wrote this book. I think that actually plays an, a tremendously important role in 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 the history of of. Uh, in the political history of, 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 of the kingdom, because of this being a, also a moral community where everybody knows each other. Um, so relationships with trust are just incredibly important. Um, I hope I answered the, the question. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I mean, and, and I think in a way it's, um, it ties on uh, exactly with that notion that these are not, uh, you know, these are tight knit communities, and and uh, if even even notions of political uh, legitimacy had a very tight end to it, with precisely with trust and with duty and uh, and with serving uh, the purpose by, by for which he had been installed. Um, sort of speaking a little bit of that, I was wondering if we could start uh, talk uh, if we would just close by talking uh, about your epilogue and how you. Uh, sort of reflect on the ways in which this event uh, or, mem or memories of this event uh, were being remembered uh, sort of uh, later and, and, and were being sort of written into the history of or tried to be written into the history of, of maybe nation building and decolonization uh, which is one of the reasons I, I, I like you mentioned you you, you were first uh, you your attention was called by, by this, the, this rebellion. 
Yeah, so so uh, Tulante Alvaro Buta, uh, the so the the main rebel leader, um, uh, is remembered as a national hero in in in, in particularly so in northern Angola among the, the Congo speaking the Congo speaking people. Uh, so much so that that his name was sort of a, a candidate for the uh, the new university that was built in Wiesje. Uh, opened about a decade ago or so. Uh, instead, they chose uh, sort of the uh, perhaps more f- internationally more famous um, uh, uh, heroine, uh, uh, Kimpa Vita, um, well known through uh, John Thornton's work, uh, among others. Uh, so that is now the, uh, the University uh, of Kimpa Vita. And not the University of Tulante Buta, but it shows how important uh, uh, an an important figure he was. Um, Oral traditions that that were collected by uh, Angolan students um, uh, also some time ago uh, show that um, people remember him. Uh, His uprising. uh, has been uh, become a very important part sort of Congolese memory in, in relation sort of to, to, to colonial rule. So, uh, but the important thing to remember is that when this revolt happened, there were sort of sort of smaller scale uprisings happening all over uh, northern Angola, which often had to do with uh, with tax revolts. But then, uh, well, uh, different factors come into play. Buta tried. To uh, so when when first the Portuguese ceded to to the to the rebels' demands, but of course later on they tried to sort of in, impose their own uh, will again on the kingdom very quickly. Actually, so uh, instead of the king, the Portuguese became uh, the target of of the uh, of the war party. Uh, so Buta's Buta's war becomes a war against the Portuguese. Buta himself tries to connect with these, these different uprisings that take place throughout throughout uh, northern Angola. But at the time, actually, uh, well, he wasn't very successful. At the time, all these uh, parties were fighting their own battles with the Portuguese. Uh, they were not associated with the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, and they had very little interest in the in the specific battle of, of, of Tulante Buta. Um, but in later memory and uh, uh, Buddha's revolt sort of being central to, to all these skirmishes that, that, that are taking place um, sort of his actions become central to, uh, to what was going on at the time um, so that is popular memory then you have in the 1960s when sort of the first history, sort of the first modern histories of Angola start being written. Um, uh, you have this this literature that tries to connect sort of these early anti-colonial uprisings. And, and the, the main point of my book is that this was not really an anti-colonial uprising. This was an internal uh, political conflict within the kingdom. Uh, but they see these early uprisings in connection to later uh, nationalist movements. So this were, these were sort of early expressions of, of ethno-nationalism, as the term was then. Um, that might have sort of 
created some feedback into how 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 Angolans have understood uh, this this tradition. Um, there's definitely also so part of the political movements that that came up in the fifties in northern Angola and uh, across the border in in uh, Belgian Congo and then later independent Congo. Uh, the the leaders of of the political movements then uh, were often descendants of of, of uh, 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 characters in in my book. Uh, so, for example, Holden Roberto himself. I mean, the main one, the, the most obvious uh, political, uh, the, the most famous political leader. But there were also smaller movements. But uh, he descended from uh, one of the first uh, uh, mission students of the of the Baptist missionaries. Uh, but there's so there's a, also Kiditu uh, had a uh, I believe it was a nephew who who was one of the leaders of a nationalist movement uh, within uh, San Salvador. So people themselves sort of have personal connections back to that uh, to that particular episode, uh, and that is only of course like a generation or two uh, or two later. Um, so historically. It would be wrong to see Buddha as sort of an, an early expression of, of, of Congolese nationalism. Well, Congolese in a very narrow sense, yes, but not in the sense of how, how people in the 60s started sort of having sort of mythical views of, of what this kingdom was, where even in, uh, in Kinshasa, um, uh, there, were, there was talk of sort of rebuilding, and ever since, right, into, 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 the, into the 21st century, uh, uh, there are dreams sort of, of rebuilding the kingdom, uh, but these are really sort of utopian, uh, utopian ideals that, 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 uh, that have no relevance basically in the concrete, uh, concrete political context in which Northern Angolans nowadays live. Um, so yeah, he's, he has become sort of a mythical figure. Um, and unfortunately, that's that that is that is really unfortunate. We know very little about uh, Tulante Buta. Um, um, there, uh, his palaver is 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 amazing. Uh, but that is basic. That is practically all we know of him. His his um, the transcripts that 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 the missionary. Um, students made of his uh, of his palaver uh, that is when he, he lays everything out and you, you get to you sort of get to know him uh, a little bit uh, but but who he was otherwise uh, there's not much known about him and also not how how his life uh, he was he was in the end uh, captured and uh, uh, he, he died in prison uh, if I remember correctly uh, but but uh, after the revolt, there is no trace of him. Not not yet, at least, of him in the Portuguese archives. Yeah. Well, um, it's uh, definitely uh, like I said, uh, like I told you before we started the formal recording. It was very very illuminating, and I think, in some ways, uh, particularly so, precisely for that. Uh, 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 for com ma ma making the process of sort of like the initial uh, history or the the early history of colonialism, uh, obviously 
bring into it the complexity that it had. You know, it's it's uh, like I said, it's not it's it's generally seen as this moment, but in reality, it's, it's a much more complex process that involves intermediaries, that involves this sort of rethinking the old of the old and 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 reinventing of the new, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I wonder if if you could just. Uh, uh, Tell us just a little bit about what you're working on right now. Uh, where, where, where have you moved on since since you finished this book? Yes, yes, we, we've 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 talked already for for so long, and there's still so much to say in a way about 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 the book. Um, but um, yeah, so since then I've moved on to coffee. Um, so I, I obviously because of the book I, I worked on 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 Northern Angola. Uh, and um, as you travel to Angola uh, and as you read about Angolan history, you can't escape coffee. I mean, coffee in the colonial period and here again, colonial, including the proto-colonial period. So starting in the early 19th century, but particularly in the 20th century, coffee was such a central, played such a central role in, uh, in the history of, of, of Northern Angola and throughout Angola. Uh, through again forced labor schemes that pulled people from other people uh, other regions in in Angola to uh, plantations in northern and uh, central Angola. Um, so that is and I, so when I worked on this book, I I, I and particularly when I finished it, I thought, okay, now I want to work on something that was uh, uh, really important to uh, uh, the people of Angola and on which we know still so very little. Uh, which is the history and their history of of coffee, and that's um, I mean it's it's a it's a double sided history. I mean on the one hand it's a history again of of of, of uh, forced labor uh, and uh, a history of settler agriculture, uh, labor exploitation, and people have remembered it in that way. At the same time, when you speak with people from northern Angola, they also remember coffee very much as a uh, uh, um, as 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 a as an as an opportunity. I mean, people had their own coffee farms uh, and um, build riches based on that. So they have a, also a more positive history uh, uh, of of coffee, and that's that's something that I try to work out. Uh, uh, so in all its complexity, uh, in 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 a sort of a forthcoming monograph. Well, that sounds uh, like a wonderful project, and I hope we're we will be seeing it soon, and we'll have an opportunity to talk about it again. That would be wonderful. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I really enjoy it, and I hope you have a nice rest of your day. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for speaking with me, and uh, yes, you too have a wonderful day, and take care. <laughs>